Chapter One of The Golden Snare by James Oliver Curwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. The Golden Snare by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter One. Bram Johnson was an unusual man, even for the Northland. He was, above all other things, a creature of environment, and necessity, and of that something else which made of him at times a man with a soul, and at other times a brute with the heart of a devil. In this story of Bram, and the girl, and the other man, Bram himself should not be blamed too much. He was pathetic, and yet he was terrible. It is doubtful if he really had what is generally regarded as a soul. If he did, it was hidden, hidden to the forests and the wild things that had made him. Bram's story started long before he was born, at least three generations before. That was before the Johnsons had gone north of sixty. But they were wandering and steadily upward. If one puts a canoe in the lower Athabasca and travels northward to the Great Slave and thence up the Mackenzie to the Arctic, he will note a number of remarkable ethnological changes. The racial characteristics of the world he is entering change swiftly. The thin-faced Chippewa with his alert movement and high-bowed canoe turns into the slower-moving Cree with his broader cheeks his more slanting eyes, and his racier birch-bark. And even the Cree changes as he lives farther north. Each new tribe is a little different from its southernmost neighbor, until at last the Cree looks like a Jap and the Chippewyan takes his place. And the Chippewyan takes up the story of life where the Cree left off. Nearer the Arctic his canoe becomes a skin-kayak, his face is still broader, his eyes like a Chinaman's, and writers of human history call him Eskimo. The Johnsons, once they started, did not stop at any particular point. There was probably only one Johnson in the beginning of that hundred-year story which was to have its finality in Bram. But there were more in time. The Johnson blood mixed itself first with the Chippewa, and then with the Cree, and the Cree-Chippewa-Johnson blood, when at last it reached the Eskimo, had in it also a strain of Chippewyan. It is curious how the name itself lived. Johnson. One entered a teepee or a cabin expecting to find there a white man, and was startled when he discovered the truth. Bram, after nearly a century of this intermixing of bloods, was a throwback, a white man, so far as his skin and his hair and his eyes went. In other physical ways he held to the type of his half-strain Eskimo mother, except in size. He was six feet and a giant in strength. His face was broad, his cheekbones high, his lips thick, his nose flat, and he was white. That was the shocking thing about it all. Even his hair was a reddish blonde, 
wild and coarse and ragged like a lion's mane, and his eyes were something of a curious blue, and at others, when he was angered, green like a cat's at night-time. No man knew Bram for a friend. He was a mystery. He never remained at a post longer than was necessary to exchange his furs for supplies, and it might be months or even years before he returned to that particular post again. He was ceaselessly wandering. More or less the Royal Northwest Mounted Police kept track of him, and in many reports of faraway patrols filed at headquarters there are the laconic words, We saw Bram and his wolves traveling northward, or Bram and his wolves passed us. Always Bram and his wolves. For two years the police lost track of him. That was when Bram was buried in the heart of the sulfur country east of the Great Bear. After that the police kept an even closer watch on him, waiting and expecting something to happen. And then the something came. Bram killed a man. He did it so neatly and so easily, breaking him as he might have broken a stick, that he was well off in flight before it was discovered that his victim was dead. The next tragedy followed quickly, a fortnight later, when Corporal Lee and a private from the Fort Churchill barracks closed in on him out on the edge of the barren. Bram didn't fire a shot. They could hear his great strange laugh when they were still a quarter of a mile away from him. Bram merely set loose his wolves. By a miracle, Corporal Lee lived to drag himself to a half-breed's cabin, where he died a little later, and the half-breed brought the story to Fort Churchill. After this, Bram disappeared from the eyes of the world. What he lived in those four or five years that followed would well be worth his pardon, if his experiences could be made to appear between the covers of a book. Bram and his wolves. Think of it. Alone. In all that time without a voice to talk to him. Not once appearing at a post for food. A loop giroux. An animal man a companion of wolves. By the end of the third year there was not a drop of dog blood in his pack. It was wolf, all wolf. From whelps he brought the wolves up until he had twenty in his pack. They were monsters for the undergrown ones he killed. Perhaps he would have given them freedom in place of death, but these wolf beasts of Bram's would not accept freedom. In him they recognized instinctively the super-beast, and they were his slaves. And Bram, monstrous and half-animal himself, loved them. To him they were brother, sister, wife, all creation. He slept with them, and ate with them, and starved with them when food was scarce. They were comradeship and protection. When Bram wanted meat, and there was meat in the country, he would set his wolf horde on the trail of a caribou or a moose, and if they drove half a dozen miles ahead of Bram himself, there would always be plenty of meat left on the bones when he arrived. 
Four years of that. The police would not believe it. They laughed at the occasional rumors that drifted in from the far places, rumors that Bram had been seen and that his great voice had been heard rising above the howl of his pack on still winter nights, and that half-breeds and Indians had come upon his trails here and there at widely divergent places. It was the French half-breed superstition of the chasse-galerie that chiefly made them disbelieve, and the chasse-galerie is a thing not to be laughed at in the Northland. It is composed of creatures who have sold their souls to the devil for the power of navigating the air, and there were those who swore with their hands on the crucifix of the Virgin that they had with their own eyes seen Bram and his wolves pursuing the shadowy forms of great beasts through the skies. So the police believed that Bram was dead, and Bram, meanwhile, keeping himself from all human eyes, was becoming more and more each day like the wolves who were his brothers. But the white blood in a man dies hard, and always there flickered in the heart of Bram's huge chest a great yearning. It must at times have been worse than death, that yearning to hear a human voice, to have a human creature to speak to, though never had he loved man or woman. Which brings us at last to the final tremendous climax in Bram's life, to the girl and the other man. End of chapter 1 Recording by Roger Moline